Good morning, y'all. I forgot. I didn't really forget, but like I forgot. Man, the music here. Love, man. I love Richmond, but I miss this music. <laughs> so yeah, we. Um, I don't know if y'all saw the RV outside. We decided it, it would be um, fun and relaxing family vacation to come up here in an RV, camp along the way. It was fun. <laughs> Wasn't relaxing. You get four boys in an RV camping through the Shenandoah National Park is kind of exactly what you would expect. Like, really stressful, and then bright moments of glory, then overpass. Like, wow. So, uh, yeah, on the, on the uh, con side, I started to get a little s- sick and tired and kept me from sleeping well last night. So I might keel over, but you've got great pastors who can stand up. But on the pro side, that means I come to you just like all of you, kind of tired, coming out of the storm of regular life, um, normal, broken, sinner, just like you. And by the grace of God, I think great things are going to happen this weekend. I am actually so excited to talk to you about what we're going to talk about and so honored to come back. I really do that whole spiel about I'm like you. I, I mean, I feel like that. Like, I, you know, I was at these retreats a couple years ago, and um, I'm happy to talk to you as somebody who the Lord has worked in my life in hopes that he might do something in your life. So let me start with, by reading two passages about this great Lord. You, know, you, don't, you don't have them in your bulletin. I'm going to read two, two passages about some amazing things that Jesus did in Mark, and then we'll dive in. This is from Mark 4.35. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in a boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him up, and they said, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And he woke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then a couple chapters later, they're in a boat again, and Jesus is walking out to them. It's about the fourth watch of the night, and Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. This is now Mark 6. He meant to pass by them, but they saw him walking on the sea, and they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. All right, so August 23rd of 2017, if you were in or around Houston, Texas, or just on the internet, um, you would have heard a constant stream of evacuation orders, because a storm was coming. You might remember Hurricane Harvey was headed in, and everybody was headed out. And I remember... um, getting on the internet the next morning to see how things were happening and going. And I saw these pictures of just cars filling the interstates, just packed, trying to escape the city. And then I saw, along with the rest of the nation, you might have seen it, a viral picture because it was a line of truck drivers and boat owners. And in all the viral moments the internet has had, and it's still relatively short life, this was one of the most beautiful because as you looked at the picture, And then read the captions, you realize this line of truck drivers and boat owners are not escaping Houston. They're going in. On hearing of the danger, they ran to it. On hearing of the order to get out, they went in. Um, I start with this image this morning because 
I want to ask us a question, and I want it to unfold over the course of this weekend. In the face of a cultural storm, what kind of believers are we? What kind of followers of Jesus are we? When the storm waters come for us and our neighbors, are we the kind of people who say, you know, there's not anything really wrong? Or are we the kind of people who like, let's get out, let's head for the hills? Or are we the kind of people who, like the Savior we proclaim, walks into the storm? Are we the kind of people who know that that kind of Savior is the one who walks into the storm and says, be still, be at peace? The reason I, I, I start like this is because I, I want to actually argue this morning specifically that there, we are living in a kind of cultural storm. And because of it, we all share this common feeling as Americans in our modern moment. And it's this feeling of being absolutely overwhelmed. Um, this might be an internal thing for you. It might be overwhelmed by your anxiety, uh, your job stress, your depression, your family stage. It might be external. It might be somebody, the, the, the pressures that you feel from someone else. Um, it might be life circumstance. But it is now, I think, almost ubiquitous that if you are an American in our modern moment, you feel this sort of rumble of panic. You try to be quiet, you try to be still, and then you hear it. It's like underneath all things. And I want to ask, in the, kind, in the face of that kind of cultural storm, what kind of believers are we? Now, so I'm going to be talking through the weekend about habits of grace. And I'm going to tell you that I think that, that Jesus, in his grace, can repattern our lives better than we can to help us weather this storm. But, 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 what we are going to see is that this is, this is not just, this is not self-help. Uh, this is not mindfulness. This is not self-care. Um, none of those are bad words, but this is, that's just not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the direction of the gospel, where Jesus walks to us, finds us in our storm, and says, be still, and saves us. And then what does he do to these disciples chapters later? He sends them out into the world. So we are going to talk about an unfolding way of how habits of grace begin in our life. And this morning, we're going to talk about sort of an uprhythm of how they bless our own walk with the Lord. Um, this is, I've got a little block here, don't I? So this morning, we're going to talk about habits of purpose in an age of distraction. But then tonight, we're going to start to move out, and we're going to talk about how these habits can actually affect our communal relationships with each other. And we're going to talk about how to be present with each other in an age of absence. And then on Sunday morning, maybe my favorite, I'm passionate, as a former missionary, we're going to talk about how, how do these kind of habits send us out into the storm of our world to find our neighbors. And we're going to talk about bearing out habits of light in what is a secular age. So that's where we're going um, but in order to start, you probably need to know a little bit more about who I am. So let me tell you a story. We will start here. Um, I graduated from the University of Virginia in 2006. Yes! <laughs> Walter. Now, I, so I talk about the book sometimes now, and I go places, and now every time I'm like, I'm from UVA, remember? National basketball champions. Like, this is new for us. We're thrilled. <laughs> Um, I graduated from UVA in 2006. I met my wonderful wife, Lauren, there. And then we lived for a couple years in China where we were missionaries together. And um, I would love to tell you all about that and all about the calling experience I had, but maybe for another time. Suffice it to say, we loved living in China. Probably wouldn't have moved back, except I did have a calling experience where I encountered a protester on the side of the road in China, the first and only protester I ever saw in China. And um, she was quickly removed from the streets by the police. And I had this epiphany moment that the way that we set up law and economics 
influences moral decisions of people. It influences the way that ordinary people live. And I just, I had this calling. I mean, there's nothing short of a calling where the Lord said, I want you to be a missionary to that. You know, I had been a missionary, you know, for almost five years then. But I had this sense that the Lord was calling me to be a missionary within law and business. And so actually within a week of this protester experience, I was starting to apply to law school. I mean, it changed the course of my life. So what I want you to hear in that is I got back to D.C., right around where Duke was um, picking up the story, as a man on a mission. The Lord had called me and sent me to law school to be a missionary in my homeland, right? To be a missionary in my homeland. So life begins there. Lauren and I moved to D.C. Um, Some interesting things you should know about our time there was I had my first son, Wit, uh, during my first year of law school. You know, that year you're supposed to spend, like, studying all the time. Um, So we're great planners. (laughs) And then I had my second son, Asher, on the day I was supposed to take my last final at Georgetown Law. So I still remember going down the street, I was riding my um, motorcycle, and I felt my phone buzzing in my pocket. I mean, I'm on the way to school to take a final. And I'm like, she's going into labor. And I turned the bike around, sure enough. They did let me make up the exam later. <laughs> and it was pass-fail, so, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I did pass. Anyway, I passed with flying colors, actually, and this is part of the point of the story. Graduated at the top of my, of my class, and um, things were going great. I mean... I, we didn't move down to Richmond, and I'll tell you more about why we moved down to Richmond actually in the session tonight. But we moved down to Richmond um, with two wonderful boys. You know, I spoke Mandarin Chinese. Um, I, I got the top law job. I had graduated at the top of my class. I was feeling so great about life at the time that I had bought this BMW motorcycle that I was riding on at the time. Like, I felt awesome about life. Things were going great. Um, but however, I do know there was, there was one sort of nagging thing in my life at the time, and that was that I felt completely overwhelmed by my schedule. Now, I didn't think this was a big deal, right, because all, this is what top law students do. Frankly, this is what the whole city of D.C. does. This is the water we swam in, right? You and I, you, we all still do. This is our modern moment, and it's maybe particularly accentuated in law school, but you know what I'm talking about. Every single extra resume activity I could take, I took. Um, if I could add an extra thing to do, I did. Um, my life was a series of calendar alerts, beeps, rings, and dings. My, my screen was always telling me where to go and what to do. Um, but I thought that's exactly how you did well. Um, so I would say at the time, and here's what I want you to hear about this, though I had this missionary calling, okay, the house of my life was decorated with this earnest and sincere Christian content. The architecture of my life was just like everybody else's. And, of course, that was working for me until it wasn't. And here's how it fell apart. Um, I moved down to Richmond and um, passed the bar exam. We just had our second son, Asher, moved into a new house, started a new job. You know, a lot of transition going on. And I'm in my second month of a new job when one night, suddenly, I just sort of jolt awake. It's a Saturday night with this feeling of existential panic. I had no idea what it was. There was nothing. Nobody was mean to me at my new law firm. It was busy. It's a tough job. But um, no client was any crazier than any, you know, most clients are. Nothing was wrong. I just, I just sat up in bed, and I was, I was, like, buzzing. It was so weird that I woke up my wife and told her about it. Um, managed to go back to sleep. But then the next night happens again, and I never go back to sleep. Um, and it's about the 48-hour mark of not sleeping that I finally make it to the hospital, the emergency room, um, and uh, trying to figure out what's wrong. And a doctor, in one of the most anticlimactic moments of my life, looks at me and says that, Nothing is wrong. I'm just showing symptoms of what they call clinical anxiety. And he said, you know, it's really common. So don't worry about that. 
as if that's, as if that's comforting. Um, and then he sent me, you know, he sent me home with some sleeping pills, and, and my life cratered. It cratered. So what I didn't know then um, was that I was experiencing panic attacks, and I was experiencing anxiety, but I also didn't know that I respond to the sleeping pills the way that you read on the back of the bottles, um, which are terrifying to read, especially when they happen to you. It's, it's, you know, I can laugh about it in retrospect, but then, you know, hallucinogenic kind of like nightmares, huge daytime mood swings, and even suicidal thoughts. I, I, mean, I went from this wonderful time in my life to rock bottom, and I will never forget standing with my wife in a, the kitchen one night a couple weeks into this, and she hands me a pile of dishes to put away. And I look back at her, and I say, honestly, I don't know where these go. And then I went up to my bedroom to cry. Because um, I was starting to get really concerned. I mean, my was, mental life was crashing so much that simple tasks were becoming hard. So of course I'm wondering, am I going to be able to keep my job? Am I going to be able to pay back my student debt? But then more importantly, I'm wondering, am I going to be the father, the friend, the husband, the, the missionary that I've so longed to be? Like everything was suddenly threatened. And I entered this long, dark season. Y'all, it was not short. Long year where I, I you know, could not fall asleep without either taking medication or drinking alcohol. And I wasn't abusing either, but I, I, I came to a point in that where I realized, oh my gosh, the missionaries become converted. And how did this happen? How did this happen in such short order that, that the missionary to law and business became so quickly converted to the nervous medicating lawyer? I mean, the answer I want to tell you is I think, actually I'm quite sure, it was by habit. And, I, and I'll get there, but before, before I want to get there, I just want to preface you know, m mental illness, bouts with it are now, you know, exceedingly common. And in a room this size, there's many of you, for better or for worse. Um, and they're complicated. So what I want to tell you um, first is that one of the things that I found was amazingly, it's in your dark night of the soul that Jesus walks out into that storm, in any storm. It doesn't matter if a storm is your mind. It doesn't matter if it's a storm of the sea. It doesn't matter if it's a storm in the family. He can look at it, and he will come, and he will look at you, and he will say, be still. And it might be, it might be a while before he comes, but it's for your, he is doing things. He's amazing. He is powerful. And I stand here as, you know, a man who's been through that. Um, but here's, so I'm not, what, I, what I'm going to go on to say doesn't mean to solve all your problems. I'm not a psychologist. But let me tell you my story and see if it helps yours. Um, what I think found, I found in retrospect, was that a large part of what I experienced was that my mind and my body finally became converted to the anxiety and the busyness that my habits and routines worshipped. Okay, here's why I think I know that. Um, a year later, and again, it was a really long, tough year. We tried everything. My wife and I, had, we'd, we'd done some counseling. I was trying different medications. Um, one of the things that we tried was we just said, we need, we need some rhythm, some limiting patterns to rein your chaos in. Because I'm kind of, I'm not only struggling, but I'm also all over the place. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this if my job asked me to do that. I'm doing that if my friends asked me to do that. So we set up um, some daily and weekly patterns that I'm going to tell you about over the course of this weekend, okay? But I had no idea. I did not think that any of uh, these were going to matter that much. But a year later, I'm sitting at a table with two of my best friends named Steve and Matt. And on the table is this program of habits. And I'm asking them to keep me accountable to them because I'm, I'm a good boy in distress and I'm just going to do what people tell me. I didn't think anything would, of them would matter that much because I had no idea. Y'all, I had no idea how much the smallest and most ordinary 
routines of our daily and weekly rhythms actually impact our souls, our mental life, our spiritual life, our emotional health in the most deep and extraordinary ways. My life began to drastically change. And I got to this point. I remember a friend at a wedding, because he knew what I was going through, came up and asked me, like, how are you doing? And I, I remember this was the first time in maybe 15 or 16 months that I was like, I'm doing good. <laughs> and, and I meant it. And I, and I started soul searching. I was like, something, I felt closer to the Lord than I had in a long time. Still broken, standing for you even now as a man who walks with a limp with all this stuff. But I felt the presence of the Lord in that storm in a way I never had before. And so I started asking, what is going on? And I have spent a lot of time since then reading and researching, talking to people, experimenting, and trying to figure out why do habits form not just our schedule, but our emotional and our identity and our spiritual life so, so much. Um, And what I have come to is this kernel of the idea that I want you to take away is that habits form you more than you form them, right? So habits form you more than you form them. And my story, I think it it might be... um, extreme. (laughs) Not unusual. It's not unusual. And uh, so, you know, I stand before you telling it as a man um, who now regularly sleeps well, even though last night I was getting kind of sick. Last night was not great for me. (laughs) Um, Now I have four boys. I'm in the same job. I'm loving it. And, you know, I've now written a book on this because this stuff has become so meaningful and important to me. Um, here's Here's how I would phrase it for you. On May 21st, 2005, the American novelist David Foster Wallace gave an almost instantly famous graduation speech. A lot of you probably heard it. It's called This Is Water. It begins with a silly little story where he says two young fish are swimming along in the water one morning and an older fish swims by and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish look at him, look at each other, say nothing, swim on, till one of them says, what the heck is water? <laughs> and, <laughs> there you go. The point of the silly story, as Wallace put it so well, is that the most obvious the most ubiquitous, the most important and formative realities are precisely the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. So here is the water. You, I, and everybody else, we're all living according to a regimented program of habits that is forming our emotional and spiritual life. And most of us have no idea what they are and no idea how they're forming us. And now the reason I can say that they're forming you um, is not just because they take a lot of our time, though they do, a Duke, Duke survey actually about a decade ago showed that habits account for about 40% of your daily activity. So about 40% of what you, th- you think are choices are not really the product of conscious choices, they're the product of habits. Um, but that's not the real reason that I can say they form you. The reason habits form us is because they kind of take control of our sense of identity. And there's a, there's a great neurological explanation for this, and there's a great theological foundation for why the neurology works that way. Let me briefly explain both to you. Charles Duhigg wrote a great book you might have heard of called The Power of Habit, where he summarizes a lot of the psychological and neurological research on habit. And his kind of thesis can be boiled down to this. He says, when a habit is formed, the brain stops fully participating, and the decisions and the patterns of actions that we have kind of unfold automatically. All right, and so this is modern neuroscience. It's, it's really cool. We've learned a ton about this in just the past decades. As, as shown that habit activity works in the deepest part of the brain. It's called the basal ganglia. And this is actually great for us a lot of the time because it frees up our higher order thinking for other stuff. So this is why you can get in your car or jump on the metro and make all the right changes or make all the right turns on the way home. And what are you doing? You're not thinking about a single one of them 
because you're thinking about some sticky work problem or you're thinking about, you know, um, if you're me in the car, like calming the thousand questions coming from the back seat, right, Lauren? <laughs> um, your brain, whatever, is being put to better use. This is really great for us until it's a bad habit. When it's a bad habit, let's say it's an evening routine that's reinforcing an addiction. Or let's say it's a daily pattern of thought at work that's reinforcing needless anxiety, needless gossip, needless fear. Um, let's say it's a morning routine that is reinforcing mindless submission to an operating system that's designed to attract your attention and sell it to advertisers. <laughs> when it's those kind of habits, it hamstrings us. Okay, because we know our top order brain, our theology, all the things that we've learned, we know better. We, we know that we should be doing that, but our habit is going this way, right? And here's the key point I want you to take from the neurology lesson. When our head goes this way and our habit goes this way, guess which way our heart goes? It almost always goes with the habit. Why? Well, this is the difference between what we call education and formation, okay? And you guys probably know this, but you might not have put words to it. Education, this is great stuff. It's kind of what I'm doing right now. Um, it's the things we know, that we learn, the things that are taught. Now, formation, these are the things that we practice, that we do, that we don't really necessarily think about, the water that we swim in. These are the things that are caught. And so much of our life, all the important stuff in a job, and a lot of the important stuff in the walk with Jesus is a product of formation. And when you talk about formation, you're talking a lot about habit activity. Now, why? Here's why. In order to fully understand habits, you need to think of them as liturgies, okay? Liturgy might be kind of a weird, antiquated word to you, but it's, it's not, a liturgy is a pattern of worship that a worshiper does over and over in order to become formed in worship, right? So you, you sing about God, you read the scriptures over and over. We have a liturgy for a retreat. We do the same things over and over. Um, I want you to see how similar the definitions of habit and liturgy are. They're both things that we do over and over, semi-consciously to unconsciously. They're both things that form us. The big difference is liturgies admit to being worshipful. Now, habits often obscure what we're worshiping, but y'all, that doesn't mean we're not worshiping. God did not create a world with a, this side of the room for worship and this side of life for not worship. No, everything is worship. So when we're going about our daily and weekly routines by habit, we're worshiping something. Even if it's not conscious, we're worshiping something. And, and here's the rub. Just like the psalmist says, those who make and trust in idols become like them, so we become like the God or the idols that we worship, whether they're in a conscious song or an unconscious morning routine of our smartphone. We get formed in that worship. Let me, let me um, break it down practically, okay? I'm gonna take you through my morning routine pre-anxiety crash and, and try to show you how a couple of these habits are leading me in rhythms of worship. Habit number one. I wake up short on sleep again because I never go to bed on time. <laughs> What's the identity formation? Well, I am living in this mode of, I'll be fine. I can burn the candle at both ends. I'm kind of like a machine, maybe like a god. I can just go, go, go. I am infinite. This is the way that I think about myself because I do this all the time. Habit number two, I wake up and look at work emails first thing before getting out of bed. Really, like, like roll over, open my eyes and look at work emails. What's the identity formation? Well, remember, my brain's not fully participating, right? but I'm starting to be formed into someone who thinks um, the most important thing about today is whether I can get that thing for that person done. 
as if the most, you know, if I'm not well-regarded in the office, then who am I? What am I worth? You see, see the identity formation happening under the radar? Um, habit number three, we grab breakfast on the go while everybody scrambles to get somewhere late. At my office, I probably eat lunch at the desk, just cramming through the workday. What's the unconscious identity formation? Well, to be busy, even, even too busy, is not just normal, but it might even be desirable. Because that means people want my time, which means I'm useful, which means I'm needed. So I can't say no, because I want to be wanted. So I keep crashing through every day. Um, habit number four, keep alerts on my computer and phone up and in sight, get it all set up before I start my work day. <laughs> As if the best way to work is to be updated constantly. Um, the identity formation going on there is that to work is not necessarily to be communal, creative, focused, thoughtful, or quiet, but the way to work, and we'll talk about this a little bit, to serve our neighbor through work is just to pay attention. If the most recent or urgent ding, it could be a, a, a meme, it could be a Gmail, um, it could be my work account, just whatever. You know, urgent is important, recent is relevant, stay tuned. Um, and here's one last sort of meta habit. Even as I sense, as you probably sense, that, whoa, this is out of control. <laughs> like, we sort of live out of control lives. Even as I sense that, knee-jerk habitual response, don't put any limits on your life. Don't say no to any of this stuff, because as a good American, you and I know, if we sacrifice our freedom of personal choice in any moment, how are we going to become who we're meant to be? Like, freedom is the path to the identity, so I can't say no to anything. I've just got to figure out how to make the right choices in the moment. Good luck. Um, so let me stop there. Not even 10 a.m., right? <laughs> but by not having any program of counterformational habits, I am being rigorously formed in the default cultural programming, which is like a crank machine turning my soul into worship of omniscience, omnipresence, limitlessness. Look around and ask yourself, no wonder, no wonder we're falling apart. No wonder my body rebelled. We are made, brothers and sisters, to worship an omniscient, omnipotent, limitless God who is good and will take care, thank you, of us limited creatures. We are small. He is big. And of course, the fundamental sin in the garden is what? Trying to be God, not just be like him. So this is this is the habit programming that's going on. This is the formation that's going on in, in our modern world. And um, what, what I want you to see is that, think about this last freedom thing that I just said, right? We as uh, knee-jerk Americans, even just the Western world in general, I think, we think about the freedom as the way to the good life. And we think of freedom as, it, you know, it's, it means that you can pick whatever you want in the moment. It is the absence of, of limitations, okay? What if that is just totally wrong? What if the way to the good life, the way to true freedom, is not getting rid of all limitations? What if it's picking the right ones? This is the idea that Jesus, this is a theme throughout the Bible, but this is what Jesus is saying when he says, my burden, my yoke, is easy and it's light. This is why, curiously, there's this theme of a master in the New Testament. God talks about himself as the good master, as the one you ought to bind yourself to. This idea that there are the right limitations. There is a way to live in the narrow path, and it is the most freeing thing you will ever experience. It is what you were made for. It is where you will finally come alive. That is true freedom. 
So the question then is, how do we pick that? How do we choose that well? How do we pick those kinds of daily and weekly habits of grace? And historically, there has been an answer to this. Um, historically, there has been an ancient Christian concept of the rule of life. All right? And now, the rule of life um, is this idea of a communal pattern of habits that you live according to in order to become formed in common purpose. So lots of monasteries throughout thousands of years, lots of spiritual communities, and even lots of churches have had rules of life where they adhere to the same basic rhythms. This has almost entirely been lost in modern America, and it is incredibly important that we recover the idea, not just as spiritual communities, um, but as individual and communal creatures. So the Latin word, this is really important to, to know, the Latin word for rule here is not the idea of a rule that you've got to obey. All right, the, the, the Latin root for this word actually connotes the idea of a bar or a trellis. And now maybe you see where this logo, the cover of the book is going. The idea is how do you build a pattern of daily and weekly spiritual habits on which the love of God and neighbor can grow like a beautiful plant? How does life grow? This is the key idea. And um, before I'm, I'm about to jump into the common rule and start to share with you some of these habits, and they'll run through the weekend. But before I do, take this one last point. You've never heard of a rule of life. You might have never thought of this idea of programming some habits. You all have one. Everybody has, if I'm right about what we just talked about with habits, everybody is already living according to the default American rule of life. And it is forming us into the kinds of anxious, busy, depressed, vain, consumeristic, unjust, inwardly focused people that we are, that we read about, that we worry about, that we encounter. And so the question is, why, do you want to live like that? <laughs> no. When Jesus walks into this storm and brings you out, he says, there's a, there's a better way to live. My yoke is easy. So um, going back to that night that I was sitting at the friends, uh, sitting at the table with my friends. This was the pattern of habits that was on the table. Not fully developed, but these were the kind of habits that I was talking. I'm going to introduce you to the concept, and then we're going to dive in briefly to three of the habits and tell you a couple minutes about each one. The common rule as the spiritual rule of life is set out in two directions. Habits to push us towards the love of neighbor and habits to push us towards the love of God. Sort of, you know, the great commandment to love God and love neighbor. And then there's two spectrums of the habits. Some of the habits are things that we need to embrace, like that we ought to be doing and loving. Some of the habits acknowledge there is evil in the world. We're going to talk about this more tonight. Uh, there is spiritual warfare. There are things that we need to resist. And then on the inner ring, there are these four daily habits. And by the way, um, you can go on thecommonrule.org and read about all these to, to the chagrin of my publisher. There's a lot you can get even without buying the books. <laughs> Um, so you don't have to, you know, we're going to go through this this weekend. You don't have to remember it all now. But there are these four habits on the inner ring that are kind of daily rhythms. And then there are four habits on the outer ring that are these weekly rhythms. And I'm going to start with um, the, one of these inner ring habits, a daily habit of kneeling prayer. Okay? So the habit here is the habit of kneeling prayer three times a day at waking, midday, and evening. That's the habit. Why would this be important? Um, the question that we're asking is, how would we reframe our days and our weeks in the love of God and neighbor? How would we do that? And I'm going to suggest to you, it starts with reframing your, your waking, your midday, and your evening moments, because if you're like me, here's kind of how it looks. You wake up, and you immediately start thinking about 
like, I'm, I'm late, or I forgot to do this, or I need to get to this. You, you wake up to this churn, all right? And the smartphone doesn't help. We're going to get into that. You wake up to this idea of like, okay, I got to go. And if you're like me, um, caffeine and a lot of hope can power you through the first like four or five hours of the workday. But then you get to this p- point of the workday where you realize, I'm not going to get it all done. <laughs> I'm going dis- to have to disappoint somebody. I'm going to have to tell somebody I can't do this on time. I'm going to have to say no to this, or I'm going to be up all night, and I don't want to be up all night. And then you just, you have, the, you have this feeling of failure, or at least I do. And then I get to the evening, and, you know, we're putting down four boys from seven to one-year-old, and then, like, it takes all night just to clean the kitchen, reset the house, and I lay in bed, and I'm like, and I, I kind of mean this, I'm like, I, I can get to these points, like, does any of this matter? What am I doing? And, and when you live, when you punctuate your days with this morning anxiety, this midday failure, and this evening just sort of confusion, what's going on, it's kind of not surprising that a lot of us turn into sort of people who feel anxious failures, anxious, confused failures. I mean, that's just normal. The, the idea of three times a day of kneeling prayer is to take those moments and shift them, interrupt the usual pattern and shift them towards the love of God and neighbor. So waking now, yes, I'm thinking about the day, but the first thing I do is I stop and I just kneel beside the bed. And it's a different kind of waking moment to ignore your smartphone, ignore the to-do list, even ignore for a moment the six-year-old who's coming to wake me up and say, Lord, you've made me. And you made this day, and you made me for this day. That is a significant reality. There's not more than I can do in this day than you have for me. So help me to go out and serve well. It's significant at midday when I feel that urge for another cup of coffee or to search the internet because I'm starting to realize I can't do it all, get it all done, so I just need to cope. I don't even want to want to search the internet for. I just want to search it. You, know? <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, you just open Twitter because maybe something will make you happy and, for, you know, Get your mind off the fact that you're not going to be able to get it all done. It's a very different thing to take that moment and say, I'm going to close my office door if you have one. Maybe just sit at your desk, turn your palms up if you're working in a cubicle or a coffee shop, and just say, Lord, you created me to serve my neighbor through work. This is what this is about. It's not about proving my identity. It's about loving neighbors through work. Help me to do that for the rest of the day. It's a different moment at evening to try to quell all those thoughts, to just kneel at your bed and say, Lord, you're in control. Regardless of what happened in the storm today, you're in control. That's a different way of padding your day. And I am not suggesting that the whole of your prayer life should be these three brief moments of kneeling prayer, but I am suggesting that could be a trellis, brothers and sisters. I, I, I met a guy at a conference recently. Um, he and his wife came up to me and he was like, I read your book and guess what? I kneel to pray every morning now. And I was like, that's so encouraging. And his wife goes, um, yeah, and it's getting longer and longer. Like, <laughs> he's like staying by the bed for a while. And I was so encouraged because that's exactly what's happened to me. I've become a person who always wanted to pray, always, you know, wished they were someone who prays to a person who actually prays. And, uh, you know, there are all kinds of love and prayer will grow on this small daily trellis. The second habit I want to share with you um, is called scripture before phone. Okay, this is another daily habit. And the idea is, again, on this inner ring here. The idea is obvious. It's just turning to scripture before you turn to your smartphone. As when I first started my big job at um, M&A, mergers and acquisitions at this big law firm, I was working a lot with our London office. And so I really wanted to do well, right? Because I felt like this was my calling. And London, of course, is four or five hours ahead of us. So every day I wake up to four or five hours worth of emails in my inbox. First thing I would do, roll over, check my email. Never thought this was a problem until one morning my um, now two-year-old son, Coulter, he was then a couple months, 
I wake to him crying. So I get out of bed, and about five minutes later, I'm halfway through a response to the London office when I sort of snap out of it. I'm like, oh my gosh, Coulter's still crying. Like, I never went in. And he's fine. I just gave him a pacifier. He's fine. But that was my wake-up moment. I was like, how did I become the kind of person who's more attentive to the cries of their office than the cries of their son? None of us want to become like that. Nobody sets out to do that. How do we become like that? By habit. In the morning, my head, your head, we're asking our phones a really simple question. What do I have to do today? Our heart, through habit, is asking our phones a much more profound question. It's, who do I need to become today? This is, this is the human condition. Our hearts are identity vacuums, and when we put the screen in our face, especially the first thing in the morning, it will, we will, our hearts will ask the screen that question, and the screen would be glad to answer. It would be glad to answer. You can become somebody who's lovable by working hard, by taking the right picture and posting it, by saying the most pithy thing, and sometimes by, you know, throwing shade at your opponent or slamming somebody. You know, the phone is happy to answer that question. It's not just work emails. I mean, if you think about the morning news, um, you know, it's really different to wake up to the epistles where, where Paul is telling us through the Holy Spirit that God reigns over this chaos and he is going to bring a good end to this story. It's really different to wake up to the morning news, which is designed to get you so, so riled up over the fact that there is chaos and there will never be any resolve, get you so mad that you come back multiple times through the day to check and check and check and then sit down and tune in that evening. Like, there, there's a thousand people behind the screen programming it this way. It's a really different way to live. It's a really different way to start your day. Social media is really different to start your day in a psalm that says, you are loved. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are loved by God. It's quite different to start your day scrolling the pictures, um, which you know, unintentionally or intentionally show you beautiful people whose kids don't cry, whose mirrors are always perfect, increasingly who want you to buy something. Um, it has consequences for how we conceive of ourselves and who we are and who we ought to be. So this idea of flipping the order of these things, because guess what? I use social media, I do respond to my work emails, and I do watch some news. <laughs> um, I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm saying here's the difference. Here's what's at stake. When we start our day in those things, we will go to those things to look for love, okay? But when we start our day in the word of God, however briefly, maybe this is just a quick morning psalm. Maybe this is a half an hour devotion. When you fill up on the, on the word of God and know, realize that the theme of the world is that God loves you, so now you can go out to social media, to news, to work emails, and actually share love because you're not there to earn love anymore. That makes all the difference. Are you there to get or are you there to give? Let me um, close with this last habit. This is a weekly habit. Um, it's, it's revolutionary. I came up with this one all by myself. The weekly habit of Sabbath. <laughs> um, right? And, and, and you're going to get the picture through the weekend. Um, these are all the ancient spiritual disciplines recast for our modern moment. Re recast for, in, in the form of keystone habits. You go look it up later as a, psych a term psychologist uses. Small little habits that you can be make unconscious that then have huge meta effects. As it turns out, Sabbath is one of these weekly rhythms. Now, there are a lot of good practical reasons to Sabbath. Um, and I talk to lawyers about this stuff now, which I love. It's kind of a, a way of being a missionary to law that the Lord... Has, has answered his calling in a way. Um, and, you know, I tell them all this stuff, like, um, th there's no way that you're going to get what you want to do done by working 80, 100 hours a week every week. Like, that's the way to get to an anxiety crash, like I had. So we, we should just intuitively know, and studies show, that work productivity drops off pretty sharply 
around somewhere, but depending on who you are, like 50 to 60 hours of work. So we should know just if we're going to do well at our job, if we're going to go the long haul, if we're going to serve our clients, customers, coworkers well, we need a break, okay? It's just, it's just sort of common wisdom. Um, there's also the idea that Sabbath or days off enforce deadlines, which is really useful. Duke Ellington once said, I don't need more time. I just need a deadline. You guys know what I'm talking about? You, just, you need somebody to say, get it done by now. And when you take a day off, what you have to do is say, well, if this thing has to be done by Monday, or depending on what your day off is, then I got to get it done now. And there's this nice ordering effect to taking a day off. Great stuff. Doesn't scratch the surface of Sabbath. Doesn't scratch the surface of why God invites us to Sabbath. You want to know why Sabbath is just revolutionary as a weekly rhythm? It's because if you are actually going to Sabbath as a weekly routine, you have to reduce the idea of your importance. You have to shrink your identity a little bit. Because whether you are a lawyer like me, or a marketing consultant, or a stay-at-home mom, or in transition between some of those things, wherever you are, if you're going to Sabbath, you're going to have to come to a point where you say, I can't finish it all. It might be the laundry. It might be the you know, PowerPoint that you're working on. It might be whatever billable you have for whatever client. You're going to get to the point where you're like, oh my gosh, I, just, I actually can't get it all done. And y'all, that is so important because that's the way reality is. You can't get it all done. It, you know, at the end of the day, we are small, limited creatures who when we die, people will forget our names. And that's a little bit sobering until you realize that Jesus, Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. What did he mean? He meant that everything that needed to happen in the world for our good and his glory is done. It's finished. And when he rose again from the grave, he opened a world of possibilities of ways that we can participate with him in ministry, in work, in love, in the service of neighbor. But our whole idea of work comes out of this idea that there is a savior who has finished it so we can rest. We can work out of rest. And guess what else we find? The world may forget our names, but guess who's on his hands? Our names are written. All the things that we do, all the things that we long for, they will come to fruition so we can rest. This is the best news that our culture has ever heard. And we need to live it and to preach it and to rest in it. Um, I want to close with this picture of my fourth son, Shepard. Is he sleeping, Lauren? We don't know. He was in this picture. This is about um, nine months. No, no, 10. This is just after he was born. I love this picture because it reminds me of the kind of fundamental truth behind Sabbath. You can't really rest, like conk out like a baby, until you know there's somebody bigger than you, who loves you, who is in charge of you, and that God is with you, so you can rest. I want to close, take your eyes back to that um, picture I drew up of the storm. The trucks driving in, you know, that, that is the way that we're going, Right? These kind of habits, they can get us started in the piece of the gospel in our daily and, week routine, daily and weekly routine. But the question is, where, where do we go with them? And so tonight, I want to talk about how do we take them into community? How do we go into this storm and find our friends and say, there is peace, there is a savior, and he has rhythms. He can pattern your life better than you can. Let me close in a minute of prayer. Lord, thank you that you, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You are good and you take care of us. Would you help us uh, to dive in this weekend to some ways that we might be able to live out your rhythms of grace through our days and week? And would you also, would you remind us as we talk about this, 
Lord, that we cannot change your love for us. None of these habits are going to change the way that that you love us. But Lord, also teach us and convict us that your love should change our habits. Your love should change everything. Your love does change everything. Your grace changes it all. I pray that it would change our habits too. It's in your mighty name that we close. Amen.